Good morning, everybody. Welcome to week three of Forensic Psychology. In this week, we're going to do things slightly differently. Rather than give you a kind of the, the standard presentation on what can go wrong uh, if a profile is followed too accurately or kind of the maybe the pangs and the pitfalls, some of the things we've talked about in the last week, I'm going to show you a documentary in which you basically see all of these issues come to life. But rather than just kind of give you the link or send it away and press play. What I'm going to do is I'm going to watch the documentary with you. And at certain times I'll come in, I'll, I'll annotate it, I'll, I'll walk you through it, I'll, I'll kind of explain some of the things that are going on in there. So we'll really watch it together. But I just wanted, to, I, I can't not show you this documentary. It's too important for the history of forensic psychology. It conceptualizes too many of the, the problems that we've talked about. And I really need to show you profiling at its, at its worst, almost the darkest hour, so I can then teach you the gold, kind of the, the shining light at the end of it. So I hope you enjoyed this documentary, I hope you enjoy the week uh, and, and the week's content, and, and this is one that I find students always resonate with, they always talk about it in their midterms, you know, it really brings this subject to life. So with that, I really hope you enjoy it, and uh, let's get to watching. Police are appealing for witnesses after the brutal murder of a young mother in a South London park. The body of the woman who was attacked in broad daylight was found on Wimbledon Commons. A toddler was clinging to the half-naked body. The two-year-old boy was covered in blood and dirt and had himself been physically beaten. The murder of Rachel Nickell 25 years ago appalled the nation. And even though I was a hardened veteran of brutal crime, it uh, awoke feelings of shock and horror in me. Squads of police are combing the common for clues. The brutal murder has shocked people who use the spot regularly. Rachel's image launched one of the biggest news stories of the decade. She burst off the screen. She's memorable. It's that sort of joie de vivre that passed Rachel Nickell into legend under the intense media spotlight her murder investigation would lead to a disastrous honey trap operation targeting an innocent man colin stagg he was desperate to have sex with this woman who was in fact saying to him if you killed her i'll have sex with you while the press hounded colin Serial killer Robert Knapper roamed free and murdered again. There was the chance to stop this man, and it was lost. I'm Fiona Bruce, and it's a case I've never forgotten. This is still an investigation on an awesome scale. I was a junior reporter at the time, and it was my first murder case. Now I'm going to meet key people at the heart of this investigation. Some speaking for the very first time. 25 years since the police operation, I want to understand 
how this case transformed murder investigations forever. And, and arguably criminal profile. You, you can't really do this case without On the 15th of July, 1992, the peace and quiet of affluent Wimbledon Common was shattered by the murder of Rachel Nickell. She was killed while taking her son for a morning walk. 200 police officers were drafted in to hunt the brutal killer. The woman's body was discovered by a passerby. Ron Turnbull was the first detective to arrive at the horrifically violent crime scene. I remember I was a very junior reporter covering that story. I saw the pictures of Rachel's body. I'll never forget what I saw. You've seen many crime scenes. What was your reaction when you saw where Rachel was lying there? It's still foremost in, in my, my memory. I mean, at that time, I, was, uh, I had 20-plus years as a Scotland Yard detective and thought I'd seen it all. And the ferocity of the attack, 49 stab wounds. Yeah. And in this case, you could actually see um, in some of this, the, the deeper stab wounds that the hilt had actually bruised the body as well. So the ferocity of the, the lunges of the knife. A lovely day, kids, dogs, perambulators. How did that happen? So ju ju just for yourself, I mean, as an intuitive forensic psychologist, if you will, think for a second now just about this crime and what i want you to do is i want you to generally put together a profile in your mind and and compare that then to what emerges but a few other facts then so it's it, it's seven it's seven or, or so early in the morning it is a very young uh pretty blonde victim uh walking in a popular park in the center of london with her with her two-year-old son she is ambushed and stabbed 49 times to the hilt so so that means that the the stab was so aggressive that the handle made not only made contact with the skin but it bruised it and she was then discovered by passers-by and the child was was left just with her so just two things think about that and, and come up with a profile if you will but Consider the extreme abnormality of all of those behaviours as it pertains to a murder. Because that's important to hold true here, is, is how rare that kind of a murder is. Because that is not an everyday murder. Detectives are working on the theory the murderer could have grabbed the child to lure his mother into this copse. Police say her terrified son saw his mother being murdered. There wasn't just one victim. What set this apart was that Rachel's two-year-old son, Alex, was the only witness. Rachel's son, the reports were of him clinging to her heavily blood-stained body and saying, Mummy, wake up. Now, what father of children, daughter or son, could read that and not be deeply moved and utterly horrified? The day after her murder, 
the police encouraged Rachel's partner, Andre, to make a public appeal in an attempt to find the killer before he struck again. Somebody must know something um, from the ferocity of the attack. This man couldn't have just walked down the road and not be noticed. And I would say to anybody who does know this person, no matter how they feel about them, please come forward before he destroys anybody else's life. The press coverage of the appeal attracted a huge response from the public, putting the police under even more pressure. You've obviously seen the photographs of Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. The case attracted so much publicity. The police were deluged with information, weren't they? The incident room had received 700 calls. Morning, incident room. So you're two weeks behind day one. Within days, photos and home videos of Rachel were made public to help with the investigation. This bubbly-looking woman, she burst off the screen. She smiles out at you from the photograph. It's that sort of joie de vivre that comes across. She's memorable. The savagery of this murder has shocked even the most hardened detectives. It struck me that all the police officers I talked to took this very personally. They didn't talk about the victim, they talked about Rachel. I, f I felt as if they'd all slightly fallen in love with her. It seemed that the police took it incredibly personally. I think they did. Um, I remember an officer at a subsequent post-mortem making a comment like that in front of a, a female pathologist who immediately reprimanded him for saying would it have made any difference if she'd not been a very attractive young woman. Well, she had a point. Yes, she had a point, she made the point. Do you think, given what happened further down the line with this case, the police lost, lost their objectivity? As a professional, I'd like to think no, but um, as an individual, I think there was a possibility that they, that did affect decisions that were ultimately made by um, senior officers. Ron Turnbull's job was to manage the forensic investigation, but DNA testing in 1992 was limited, and nothing pointed to the killer when we were extracting the fibres from her clothing and, and also taking uh, swabs from her flesh, that there was bodily fluid there that we thought, this is going to come down to uh, the perpetrator. And so quite soon, we would have a DNA check and, and uh, you know, someone would be apprehended. And we were surprised when that didn't happen. But, you know, it happens occasionally. It happens that you, you don't have anything to start with, so you have to start looking elsewhere. Desperate to progress the case, the team turned to a new investigative tool, criminal profiling, used by the FBI, glamorized by dramas like Silence of the Lambs and Cracker. So I just want to jump in here. Um, that, that sentence tells you everything you need to know about kind of what, why the profiling was introduced in this case. You have an immensely high-profile case. Uh, an immensely high-profile victim who has, who, has, who has garnered immense amounts of media publicity and therefore pressure. You have no evidence and no DNA evidence, and therefore you are forced to think outside the box or outside the normal realms of, of how the police 
uh, investigation would have would have proceeded. So it it was in the absence of any other leads that they turned to the criminal profiler. And you, you can see it here already, kind of already they're bringing in, you know, it was kind of it was made famous by, you know, by Cracker and, and kind of the, you know, the media depictions of everything. Shifted from being a man who has killed to being a killer. He's more experienced, he's more organized, he's harder to catch. The person the team approached was psychologist Paul Britton. Mr. Britton, who's from Market Harborough, enjoyed success in the past helping police to track... Britton was getting a reputation as someone who could help police get inside the mind of a killer. Getting a reputation. When this profile is produced, the profiler is drawing on a variety of strands. Britton began developing a character profile of Rachel's killer. As soon as it was ready, the police went public. So just before we hear the profile, what exactly has he based this on? Oh God, I hate his glasses so much. I mean, he has so, so, so some experience working with the police. He's not a police officer, so he's obviously not doing the investigative approach. He's obviously taking the, the, the clinical approach. I mean, there aren't many cases like this that you can draw from. Oh, on Wimbledon Common in southwest London, a young mother, Rachel Nickell, was waylaid and repeatedly stabbed. Her scratched and bruised two-year-old son was found clinging to her body. A consultant clinical psychologist has been drawing up a likely profile of the killer. The killer is under the age of 30. He lives locally. He still lives at home with his mum or parents or alone in a hostel or a bedsit. He likes pornography, including some of the violent sort. He doesn't have a steady girlfriend. If he's had previous girlfriends, they'll have found him unsatisfying, sexually inexperienced, and wanting to act out domineering gameplay. Now, remember, some of these guidelines could be wrong, but if you can put several clues together and they fit someone you know, we all know the importance of this. I just... I, ju I just can't emphasize enough how loose that is. I mean, some of these may not be accurate. Okay, well, if you take out the extreme ones, then 80% of people would fall under those, those like, categorizations. Under 30 and living with their parents and has unsuccessful relationships. I mean, it's not just that it was immensely broad, but that it has one or two hyper-specific things that kind of come from nowhere. Martial arts, question mark. Now is the time to call. This appeal provided police with their first major breakthrough. As far as the Rachel Nickell murder is concerned, 90 calls here to the studio the last time I spoke to the team. Ten of them, Superintendent Bassett says, are very interesting. One man has gone straight to the top of their priority list. That man was 29-year-old local Colin Stagg, who would soon become one of the most hated men in Britain. But the undercover investigation that followed would lead to an astonishingly misguided police honey trap that ruined lives. A month after her murder on Wimbledon Common, 
Rachel Nickel's funeral attracted mass media attention. Baby Alex, his face hidden, was cared for by two detectives from the murder squad. The posy of flowers from the two-year-old said simply, Bummy, you gave me my being and every moment of your time. This piled even more pressure on the police, who were desperate to make an arrest. A crime watch appeal to find Rachel's murderer resulted in several Wimbledon residents naming a suspect who lived alone on the edge of the common, Colin Stagg. So, Colin, you lived on this estate for 46 years. Yeah. Tell me about your life at the time Rachel was murdered. What, what were you doing? Uh, basically, a boring life. It was, um, uh, I was unemployed. One of the reasons you came to the police's attention was Crime Watch. Yeah. Did you watch that Crime Watch that evening? I was... I saw bits and pieces of it. I, I wasn't that overly interested in it. And then they brought out this photo of the guy with short hair that people said looked like me and stuff Did you like think that. he looked like you? I didn't think it did at all, you know, but apparently a lot of people around here thought he did. I remember I was just watching the television and that, and next thing I knew, um, the police came rushing in. Uh, said they've, uh, they're going to arrest me for the Rachel Nickel murder, and, 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 and I just remember thinking, you're joking, what? What's all this about? Police are still questioning a man about the murder of Rachel Nickel. He was arrested yesterday, the day after a video fit picture was shown on television. A number of the callers claim to recognise the picture of the man who's now the main suspect in the two-month hunt for Rachel's killer. You went to Colin Stagg's flat. What did you think? Did he look like the kind of guy that you thought could have been the murderer? Well, he fitted the e-fit. I mean, very much so. Uh, he fitted the, the profile. And uh, in the address, there were signs of Satanism or whatever. The walls were actually like blackboard. And there were etched on them were these um, cave drawings. They found the pentacle. They thought their luck was in, that uh, here we have. It's, he, he's a ready-made candidate for the murder. So the original, the crime watch doesn't say the full thing. The original profile included the phrase, phrases along the lines of, of may have an interest in the occult. And, and so that's why when 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 stag was identified stag was was indeed he did live alone he did he was viewed as a loner and he wasn't in a serious relationship um so that coupled with the the occult-esque um kind of features within the house is, is is basically what why suddenly everyone so quickly says that he fit the profile not that he fit the thank you it's not that he fit the, the profile as a whole, it's that he fit this, 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 a few of the broads and then this one specific characteristic. From Wimbledon Police Station, the man oh, was taken to Magistrates Court to extend the time the police can keep him in custody. From midnight tonight, they'll have 48 hours to charge the man or release him. Another thing that attracted the police to you was your lifestyle. Yeah. They felt that you fitted the bill of the kind of person they were looking for. 
a loner, a bit of a weirdo. And one of the rooms in the flat was painted black and had symbols on the walls, that kind of thing. That was down to my brother, who originally lived there. <laughs> he was into heavy metal music and uh, he was into all that kind of goth kind of scene and stuff like that. And, and so that was nothing to do with you then? No, um, they just put two and two together and made like ten out of it. Because Colin seemed to fit the profile of the murderer, the police focused their efforts on the wrong man. While the real killer remained free to strike again. I'm going to meet QC Jim Sturman, who would eventually have the job of proving Colin's innocence. One of the common facets of miscarriage of justice is mistaken identification. But there are many people around the country who look like that photo fit. It was also Colin's lifestyle, wasn't it, that, that singled him out for the police? He kept himself to himself. And there's always somebody, isn't there, who looks at somebody across the garden fence and says, oh, he, he's, an, he's an odd one, that Colin. One factor linking Colin to the murder was Paul Britton's profile, which suggested Rachel's killer must have a very specific sexual perversion. Mr Britton um, was presented with the facts as, as were known of the killing. He gave a series of predictions about who the killer would be, which ended with him being a person with a particular sexual deviancy. Paul Britton's criminal profile also predicted Rachel's killer was likely to have a history of minor sexual offences. So during Colin's three days of interrogation, the police pursued this specific line of questioning. They check through their records and they find that a woman saw a man with a large erection naked on the common earlier that summer. All he had to do was to deny it. <laughs> you could almost say, you know, ask for an identity parade. <laughs> Colin was advised by a solicitor to plead guilty. So the police took him straight from that confession to indecent exposure to the magistrate's court, whether he'd been in the cells for a few days, and that was his previous conviction. That was used to found the Colin Stagg convicted sex offender nonsense. A man who was originally questioned about the murder of Rachel McKell has been convicted of indecent exposure. Colin Stagg was fined £200 and ordered to pay £20 costs. Again, just to jump it, the only reason he's a suspect is the profile. And, and a series of, of they, they've not yet supported that Colin Stagg, they have no evidence linking Colin Stagg to the crime. They have evidence linking Colin Stagg to the profile and the profile is linked to the crime. But, but other than Colin Stagg lived alone and lived near the common, there's no evidence that he was present. Although Colin was free again, he was still the police's strongest suspect, and they were determined to pursue him. Everybody was frightened that they might come under the cosh for not bringing this case home. And they allowed it that to override any other realistic and rational appraisal of the quality of the material before them. Colin Stagg ran out of court this morning, displaying obvious dislike for the media after being questioned by police on the murder inquiry for nearly two days. 
And now the media had him firmly in their sights as the likely murderer of Rachel Nickell. The general public started to form the same view. All he wanted to do was to get home, get away, but it didn't do him any favors. People who saw that had that image fixed in their minds. He looks a thug. Yeah, he probably did it. Front-page stories appeared about this sinister character, Colin Stagg. The press seemed to have a hotline into the investigation, printing details only the police could know. I want to find out how they got their information. Jeff Edwards was the chief crime correspondent at the Daily Mirror. Clearly, the press were getting tip-offs from the police. What was your relationship with the police in terms of getting information about the investigation? Well, getting information from the police was really my, you know, it, that's what I was all about. That was my job to do. And, you know, I was very good at it. So there were always, you know, ways that you could find to, to talk to police officers. In a pub like this, just yeah, around the corner absolutely. from Scotland Yard. Absolutely. Most of the most important work that I did, I always used to say, was done, you know, not in the office and not inside Scotland Yard. You know, information started to trickle back, to filter back to people like me that there was only really one suspect, and that was Colin Stagg. With only circumstantial evidence, detectives hatched a plan to use a female undercover officer to seduce Colin and see if he'd make a confession. Roy Ram was head of Police Covert Operations Group, SO10, and has never spoken about the case until now. You know, we had no benchmark. This was a really horrendous murder, and we were keen to support the investigating officers as much as we could. The Met chose an attractive blonde officer codenamed Lizzie James. Guided by the psychologist Paul Britton, her job was to find out if Colin was the killer. Lizzie started writing letters, encouraging 29-year-old virgin Colin to reveal his darkest sexual fantasies in the hope of triggering a confession. I can't help thinking you are showing great restraint. You are showing control when you feel like bursting. I want you to burst. I want you to feel all-powerful and overwhelming so that I'm completely in your power, defenseless and humiliated. These thoughts are sending me into paradise already. Love, Lizzie. I mean, it's just the the, so the 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 sting operation is important because the sting operation is based on the presumption that if they can identify that Colin Stagg has the sexual fantasies featured in the profile, then they can prove that Colin Stagg committed the crime. So now their sole way to 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 convince people that Colin Stagg is the murderer is to convince people that Colin Stagg fits the profile. The profile. So, so what we have here, and you'll see it throughout the documentary, is they basically do a thing of rhetorical shaping, which is where they own... Lizzie James basically just tries to force Colin Stagg into admitting that he either murdered Rachel Nickell or he has fantasies about Rachel about murder of Rachel Nickell or he has fantasies of of a cultish and oppression and you can see it already in that excerpt you know I feel powerless I feel defenseless trying to get him to admit that he has these you know these male 
heart like like fantasies that involve control, power, and harm because that's at the that's at the heart of this goddamn profile. First got a letter from a young woman purporting to be interested in you. What was your reaction? Were you flattered by that? Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, uh, imagination a good-looking guy. Yeah, yeah. But um, if an attractive woman starts writing to someone like me, yeah, I was, I was very flattered. Yeah. Did you feel lured into saying more extreme things than you would have otherwise? By the kind of stuff she was writing to you. Yeah, um, I was, but I was basically making it all up as as I went along. You know, I just thought, well, you know, she's an attractive woman, so I just tell her what she wants to hear. You got to bear in mind, I was a lot younger in those days, and um, and so desperate to have a relationship with yeah, her, a physical relationship. Yeah, with exactly. Her. Yeah. You you can't emphasise that enough. Like there, there was some there were some exchanges where he was like. You know, we're gonna go. We're gonna go for a picnic, and I'm, I'm gonna bring, you know, elderflower wine, and I'll make you a, a parsnip and carrot cake. And she basically would write back like, "No, I'm not interested. I want you to control and be violent." Uh, not quite, not quite that on the nose, but 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 legitimately, like, she would only write back and be positive when he mentioned things that were more aggressive and then basically at some point was like i want you to be more aggressive i think as well it'll either come up in this but she tells him yes she tells him that she sacrificed a child as part of a, a cultish ritual at one point so that's where this goes but the letters didn't provide any incriminating evidence Celts breeze. After three months, the relationship progressed to a series of intimate phone calls, while detectives listened in. I don't know what to say, you know. Well, I never really met anybody like you, you know. Since you first started writing to me, you know, it's like a dream come true for me, you know. The undercover operation, there were people within Scotland Yard at the time who were saying to me, this is all a bit odd, isn't it? But it sort of, it, I think it actually sort of built up a kind of a momentum that was was difficult to stop. Not anything like this has um, never really happened to me before, you know. Yeah. really shown interest in me, you know. Yeah. So I'm not going to, you know, throw this away for anything, you know. He was desperate to have sex with this woman who was in fact saying to him, if you killed her, I'll have sex with you. Six months on from the murder of Rachel Nickell, and the killer was still at large. Behind the scenes, police were running an operation that targeted the man they suspected was the murderer, Colin Stagg. Undercover officer, codename Lizzie James, was trying to see if Colin would implicate himself in the murder, while detectives listened in. I was trying to take that right at the beginning, because uh, you know, a lot of people do suspect I did it. Hmm. Playing on my mind, you know. Because oh. what were the rumours well, that went, went with it and that? I was suspected of it, you know. Mm -hmm. but I want to tell, tell you, like I told everybody, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I've never done anything, you know. In her calls and letters, Lizzie James claimed to be turned on by the murder of Rachel Nickell. And Colin was desperate to keep her interested. I mean, you.
again, to just just talk about kind of self-fulfilling prophecies and cognitive closure. He's he's openly admitting in the sting operation that he didn't do it. And they're still convinced that if they just can get him to fantasize, they'll have the evidence that it was him. At one point told her that you had been part of murdering a child, which did not happen. You then later said that you made that up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on the face of it, it seemed pretty odd that you would say things like that. Well, and you can... It, it, it well, makes me understand slightly why the police would think that you well, were a decent suspect. Well, I mean, human beings are storytellers, aren't they? You know. Well, they're stories and stories. I mean. I know, but I mean, um, I, I just thought, well, if I make up that kind of story just to please her, you know, I'll, we'll move forwards in our relationship. I might end up in bed with her. Yeah, exactly. What's, in, what's interesting here, I think, just to think about it, is, is Colin Stagg comes to the forefront because he is, and this was said in the original documentary about him, he's a little bit odd. He is a loner. He is a bit odd. He isn't quote-unquote normal. And that's why he was he was nominated by people. And, I, and that's why I think, you know, he he's... You, you could just about convince yourself that he is odd enough to do it. But you'll, you'll see at the end that he is, he is nowhere near. He is a little odd, but, but the degree of, and this is not the scientifically appropriate word, but the degree of oddness that was required to do these crimes is, is, is thousands of times more of a deviation from the norm than, than Colin Stagg's minor interest in the occult and a, and, uh, and writing fantasy love letters to an undercover agent. And were you aware that your officer was effectively promising Colin Stagg sex if he said that he was the person who murdered Rachel McCann? All we were asked to do was to provide an undercover officer to the investigating officers to interact with this person. We were told that she was going to be perfectly safe. We were told that the structure of the questions and the dialogue was being directed by a forensic psychologist. As far as we, as far as we were concerned, that was fine. Judgment about the rest of the operation was a matter for divisional detectives. But those detectives and indeed the whole investigation were now being heavily influenced by the profile created by psychologist Paul Britton. I'm meeting Professor David Cantor, a psychologist oh, who spent Cantor. his career Thank working with the police. He believes a criminal profiler can help in only limited circumstances. People think that it's some clever, insightful individual that really owes more to Sherlock Holmes, actually, to, than to scientific psychology. For a start, to actually say you can indicate something about a person from the brief details you've got at a crime scene, um, it, it is really speculative. Paul Britton is not here to answer for himself. I mean, he clearly felt he was doing the right thing. He was doing most of it in his spare time, unpaid uh, in uh, much of the time. 
even the head of the Metropolitan Police Force believed that this was the right way to go. We, we can't know what people are feeling and thinking, um, particularly criminals who often don't even know themselves um, exactly what's going through, through their minds at the time. Sick, Lizzie James right. sent cards, gifts and a photo of herself to Colin, but there still wasn't any evidence to link him directly to the murder. So to increase the pressure, Lizzie set up a face-to-face -face meeting in Hyde Park with a man the police believed was a killer. SO10's perspective uh, to the investigating officer was you cannot expose a woman police officer to somebody you suspect has committed a heinous crime. We must make sure she is safe at every point. And I think at one point, pretty well, every, every person in the cafe that they met was an undercover police that's officer. That's the cafe just over there. Yeah. Yeah. We, we just swamped it. On their first encounter, Lizzie James wore a floral dress and brought Colin birthday presents. Over a series of intimate picnics, she claimed she was attracted to whoever had murdered Rachel Nickell. Well, she was kept going on about the Rachel Nickell case and that. I just thought, I can't be bothered with this anymore. So... I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, you wanted to have sex with yeah, her. Yeah, of course, yeah. It yeah. wasn't forthcoming. No. And so you thought, right, I might as well... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. ..give up. Yeah, yes, that, that, that's it in a nutshell, yeah. Although Colin still hadn't confessed, the police felt they finally had a strong enough case to secure a conviction. So the, 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 the strength of the case at this point was that he... he proposed a fantasy to Lizzie James that involved... I can't remember how much force it involved. I don't think it involved a weapon, but it did involve a degree of control and in a secluded area and that was was viewed as again to follow the the the, the leaping frog chain that fantasy in that letter was viewed as evidence that he had the fantasies that were associated with the profile which was due to which was uh, which were which were predicted to be the fantasies of the person who killed Rachel Nickell in August 1993, he was arrested and charged with Rachel Nickell's murder. The man charged with the murder of Rachel Nickell is to appear before Wimbledon magistrates this morning. Colin Francis Stagg, aged 30, was charged last night after being arrested at his flat in Roehampton in southwest London. Police spent the day digging up his garden and scanning the ground with metal detectors. When you were arrested by the police, you were sitting in an interview room. Would you like to introduce yourself formally? And this woman you thought you were having a relationship with walked in. Yeah. And suddenly you realised she was a police officer. Yeah. What went through your mind? Um, well, I was shocked at first, but then it, it, um, it was like a sense of reality just kicked in then. It was like, uh, you know, uh, that's why she was the way she was and that, you know, it was like, you know, you had yeah, confessed yeah. to her your innermost yeah. thoughts, fantasies, desires. The police had been reading them all. Do you remember this letter now? I wasn't embarrassed by it all. I was just shocked that you know she wasn't who she said she was. You know, and I was just more not upset, but slightly angry about that. Slightly? Yeah, but inside, were you not more than slightly angry? No, I just thought, well, you know. 
where it makes sense now, you know. So, you know, basically, you know, what, um, why would uh, an attractive woman be attracted to me? And I thought, you know, it's just like uh, those comedy things, they say, oh, that's why. <laughs> yeah. That's quite a sad thing to say. Yeah, yeah. but, yeah, it's reality. Looking at him now, do you think he could have done it? Like, I, I, I don't know. To, to me, there's such a degree of extreme violence. And Colin Stagg has such a... I'm trying not to be offensive. He presents as so insecure in himself and, and clearly has, has, has struggled interpersonally. I find it hard to, to align the the extreme level of, of, of harm. I think I should describe one of your letters to Mr Jones. The fact that you see this gorgeous blonde woman approaching from the distance. This is a terrible Is that what happened to Rachel? You looked down from your vantage point and smiled. We'll talk about why next week. And you rushed down and you ambushed her. And you push the little boy face down. Push the little boy face down into the mud. And you stab Rachel. Colin was sent to Wandsworth Prison while the police and prosecution prepared their case. The police believed they had the right man behind bars, but the real killer of Rachel Nickell was still on the loose and struck again. The bodies of 27-year-old Samantha Bissett and her four-year-old daughter Jasmine were discovered in their ground floor flat in Plumstead. Samantha had been stabbed eight times in the neck. Jasmine had been suffocated. The attack was said to be so horrific that a woman police photographer at the scene has not been able to work since. Okay, so from a statistical standpoint, what are the odds that within London, in a, I think it's a two-year stretch, there are two murders of young blonde women with their children present with extreme levels of violence. QC Bill Clegg was about to lead Colin Stagg's defence when he first heard about the murders of Samantha and Jasmine. I remember reading the papers in Chambers and within about two or three hours, I came out of the room and said to my clerk, um, I reckon that's the man that killed Rachel Nickell. It seemed to me to be perfectly obvious. Statistically, it's extremely rare for a mother to be murdered in the presence of a young child. The similarities between the two crimes were also obvious to the lead detective on Samantha and Jasmine's murders. Rachel's investigating team were called in to share information. So you invited the police over who were investigating Rachel McHale's murder to see if they could see any similarities. What was their response? Well, they were convinced it was still Stag. They, they were 100% certain that Stag was the person. Simple as that. In December 1994, the trial of the Crown versus Colin Stagg began. The public wanted to see the monster who killed Rachel Nickell go down. You know, I just resigned myself to the fact that I was going to spend the rest of my life in prison. Two years after her death, Rachel's parents arrived at court hoping for justice. 
the whole of the case depended upon the correspondence with the undercover officer and Paul Britton's analysis. The defense put forward their argument that the intelligence gathered from the honey trap shouldn't be used as evidence. It was shaped at every turn by Mr. Britton, that Mr. Britton, through Lizzie James, rewarded him every time he gave something that helped the prosecution case and punished him every time he said something that didn't. I've no doubt at all that the jury would have convicted him. Why? Because the prejudice in London, the, des the desire to see someone pay for that crime was overwhelming. Just so much emotion, just in every level of this, of the criminal justice process in this case, there is so much emotion, understandably so, but it is clouding, it is clouding the evaluation of what they are dealing with. You've got immense emotion from the public, immense emotion from the police officers, all trying to catch this person. You've got immense emotion from a jury who are desperate to see retribution. And, and, and all of this has allowed them to get to a point where the evidence that they have is the fantasy that somebody wrote after basically being coerced into writing fantasies on the reward of sexual intercourse with an undercover agent. No hard evidence. Now had to decide Colin's fate. Once I'd read all the papers, of course, and reread them, because sometimes you read it once and you think, no, maybe I've missed something here, because this is a very important case, very important case. So you read it all again. And when I'd read it a second time, I came to exactly the same peremptory conclusion. There is no case here. The case against Colin Stagg, accused of the murder of Rachel Nickell on Wimbledon Common in South London, collapsed today. Mr Justice Ognall described the operation in which a policewoman befriended Stagg over a period of months as a blatant attempt to incriminate a suspect by deceptive conduct of the grossest kind. Justice Ognall destroyed the prosecution case in an excoriating judgment. That must have been a good moment for you. It was a, a great moment of vindication. Um, it's probably the biggest terms in case emotional drag on, on, on me. It's to dream about the case all the time. I've I found the case a, a, a real burden to carry at the time. And I, I can see it makes you emotional yeah, now. Yeah. And why is that, particularly this case? Because um, he was so close to being convicted. We, we do actually do this job to do good. I know the public think we don't, and it's really Fantastic when you make a difference for good. And 25 years on, this can still yeah. bring you to tears? Not quite. <laughs> so, so next week we're going to study from Lawrence Alice and last week we studied from David Cantor. Both of them got their start on this case and Lawrence tells this amazing story of basically David Cantor just drops the Lizzie James letters on his desk and is like, look at these. And they, they look, I think they, they worked on the defence side but they basically looked through these letters and, and basically they've, they've written about it in, in, um, in a book, I think it's called Operation Edsel? Or Killer, sorry, the, the, the book's called Killer in the Shadows by Lawrence. Um, and basically what they said was that Lizzie James would, you know, she would write a letter and then, and then Colin Stagg would reply, oh, we could do A, B or C. And she's like, okay, let's do C. And he's like, okay, okay, so, you know, okay, I want to do, do C. So, okay, cool, what do you want to do next? You know, what, what if I did A, B or C? 
no, I don't want you to do B. Never, never say A again, never say C again. Okay, okay, well, now what shall I do? Well, what if I do A, B, and C? No, no, I want you to do C. And so she's shaping his behavior based on reinforcement. And this is a, like, like, that's what it, it, it was called, um, yeah, it's called rhetorical shaping. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of a good example of this kind of in the real world. It's quite hard without seeing it. And I might send you some of the extracts this week. But the whole thing was to get Colin Stagg from talking as he naturally would to talking in a way that was exactly what they would have wanted him to say based on the profile. But for Rachel's parents, the judgment was a bitter blow. The law has been upheld, but where is the justice? I understand that the police will now keep the files on my daughter's murder open, but they are not looking for anyone else. Mr. Nickell, who had been badly served by the police, said um, effectively that the guilty man's got off. And then Colin's nightmare began afresh, but in a different way. He just wasn't in, in Wandsworth prison for it. Uh, it was so it was rewarding, but very quickly we thought the jury's verdict means nothing. The police have apologised to Rachel Nickell's family, but not to Colin Stagg, who spent over a year in custody. It was like lynch mob mentality, and I just thought, you know, if it, these people got their hands on me, I wouldn't stand a chance. Under siege once more, Colin Stagg had police protection today as the Rachel Nickell case continued to haunt him. But Colin wasn't the only person under attack. When I opened the Daily Mail next morning and saw the banner headline, Judge in the Dock, which led certain newspapers to conduct a vendetta against me for many years as the man who let a man get away with murder. But it went much further than that. I mean, the police were actually actively briefing the press that um, Colin Stagg was guilty after he'd been found not guilty. They were actually telling everybody he was a guilty man who'd got off on a technicality. And do you have evidence that the police were briefing the press in that way? I know they did. How? They told me. The press. Colin Stagg continued to be hounded as the man who'd got away with murder. It would take 14 years before the police would finally identify the real killer and realize he could have been stopped from killing again. 14 years is a long time to be public enemy number one. It's a long time. The police and press mistakenly believed Colin Stagg had killed Rachel Nickell. But in fact, the real killer was still on the loose. In South London, Detective Mick Banks was investigating the murder of Samantha Bissett and her four-year-old daughter, Jasmine. The case had similarities to Rachel's, but attracted minimal media attention. The press coverage of the murder of Samantha Bissett mm. was very different to that of Rachel Nickell. It was, in comparison, it was ne negligible. You know, it was a young lady in south-east London that had been horrendously murdered with her daughter and suffocated. And it just seemed as if it never happened. And why do you think that was? I think it was just the area. I mean, this is a working-class area in Woolwich. Um, her lifestyle, she was a single mum. Uh, she had a boyfriend. 
she'd been a bit of a hippie type in the past, you know. And I just don't think there was the interest in it. I'm reading this book called Hate Inc, uh, in which it basically talks about the media is a consumer product that's designed to make those who watch it happy. And you 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 almost get that sense here. And you do in a lot of crime reporting that two cases equally abhorrent, equally vicious, equally scary. One is is national media attention for for, for decades and the other is a week of news and then immediately forgotten. It's shocking and distressing. It's double murder. And the police, working with a clinical psychologist, fear that the man who did it might have killed before and might do it again. Might have killed before. I don't know, maybe in the exact same way two years ago? Anyone? 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 As with the Rachel Nickell case, the police turned again to the psychologist Paul Britton to help them identify the killer. They made an appeal on Crime Watch. How much do you think you know him? I think we know quite well what was going through his mind at the time of the offence. But I would like him to tell me how he got started on the pathway that led him eventually to kill, to harm Samantha. And when he came at your request to help with this murder, it wasn't my request. I was told to get him in. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. I would also like him to tell me why it was necessary for him to harm the child as well. When you say you'd like him to tell you, I mean, he's not very likely to ring up and say, can I speak to Paul Britton, please, and here's, here are his answers. Or is he, do you think? I think that there is a possibility that he might want to do that. Very nice chap, but uh, I think one of my youngest DCs gave exactly the same outline of who he thought would be responsible as what Paul Britton came up with. So not particularly insightful in No, I don't think it was, no. As part of his investigation, Mick Banks also reviewed a series of unsolved attacks on women known as the Green Chain Rapes that happened in South London just before Rachel Nickell was murdered. For context, that's 86 rapes, is the Green Street Rapes. Several of the latter rapes were conducted in front of young children. And yes, Paul Britton gave a profile for that too. Looking at the reports, one name leapt out. Robert Knapper had been brought several times to the police's attention, but they didn't follow him up. When you found out that Robert Knapper's own mother had suggested to the police that mm. he had committed a rape, two of his colleagues suggested he might be involved, Robert Knapper was asked to come in and give a DNA mm. sample, twice he failed to turn up, and none of that was pursued. He was never actually grabbed at the time, mm. it's pretty unimpressive, isn't it? it? It would not have happened if I'd been running that inquiry. But that would be like a red light, which it was to me. As soon as we saw it, we thought, well, this is a good suspect. As they pursued this lead, they found a handprint at Samantha's flat that was a match for Napa. It was enough to charge and convict him for the double murder. Today, the Old Bailey heard how Napa had stalked and spied on Samantha Bissett before the murder took place. 
He'd also done this to three other victims, one of whom he'd raped and the other two he'd attempted to rape. Psychiatric reports read in court today said that he was a grossly psychotic and deeply ill young man. He's been sent tonight for indefinite treatment at Broadmoor. QC Bill Clegg is one of the few people who's come face to face with Robert Knapper. You interviewed Knapper when he was in Broadmoor awaiting trial. How did he strike you? Um, he struck me as completely mad. He, he believed that what he was doing in murdering the Blissett family was something that he was instructed to do by people from outer space. So just to, just to my previous point, that is what extreme abnormality looks like. Now, I don't know if there's a study that looks at this. It might be intuitive and I could be completely wrong, but, but the extremeness of the behaviour in the Rachel Nacelle case, to me, I, my first thought would be, does it warrant an extreme disturbance of normality? Not a Colin Stagg disturbance of normality, which is minorly viewed as abnormal, as in he's a bit off. Robert Knapper thinks he's murdering people because of aliens. That's extreme abnormality. Scotland Yard is winding down its investigation into the murder of Rachel Nickell. Detectives have taken almost 9,000 statements and spoken to more than 6,500 witnesses. Today, a police spokesman said they had no new leads. Paul Britton had been advising the police on the green chain rapes, the Bissett murders and that of Rachel Nickell. He created three different criminal profiles for each one. Paul Britton wrote in his book that he was asked, could the killer of Samantha Bissett be the same killer as mm. that of Rachel Nicole? And he said, no. He thought that it was a completely different scenario, one murder to the other. His specific words were that the Rachel Nicole murder had a greater degree of frenzy. Or lesser degree. I think a let a greater degree of, of, of frenzy, which makes sense because she was murdered in a park in the morning and Samantha Bissett was murdered in her own home where no one was going to disturb them. A, C, environment. What do you mean? Do you think that? it's a different scenario? The only difference is, is that one was in the open and one was in the flat. But the, the wounds were very similar, the circumstances were very similar. I'm just thankful that we got him, because if we hadn't, I'm sure we would have been another Jack the Ripper. Paul Britton told us he explained the limitations of his work to the police, and the profile of Rachel's killer was to help prioritise suspects and not to identify Colin Stagg. While assisting the undercover operation, he says he told police he would not be party to an entrapment and was not involved in the content of their communications with Colin. He also claims he did link the three cases, but investigators told him the crimes weren't connected and his work was objective and professional throughout. As the years passed by, Rachel's killer had still not been brought to justice. To, to be clear, Rachel Nickell, the, the Samantha Bissett conviction was, let, let, I can't remember the year, but let's say two, 1998. Robert Napper had been convicted on multiple sexual assaults and the murder of Samantha Bissett. 
and they still didn't say didn't think that he had murdered Rachel Nacal, and the public still thought it was Colin Stagg. But then in 2007, 13 years after Colin Stagg's acquittal, the Met announced a major breakthrough using a trace of DNA originally found at the crime scene. Police are considering their next steps now a new suspect has emerged in the case of Rachel Nickell, murdered on Wimbledon Common in London 12 years ago. Simon Foy was the commander of the homicide unit at the time. And they discovered that there was a DNA trace which was one that they hadn't been able to see before because the techniques had not allowed them to do that. The trace of DNA now identified on Rachel's body narrowed down a list of suspects. On that list was Robert Knapper. What was it in the end that, that convicted Knapper? Was it his DNA? They took a scraping of hair from the young boy Alex. If you imagine a minute particle that you couldn't even hardly see, and they proved that it actually came from Napa's toolbox. Today, the killer of Rachel Nickell was found guilty of stabbing her to death on Wimbledon Common 16 years ago. Robert Napa is a paranoid schizophrenic who's already in broad. It was the end of a case that I'd followed for years. Finally, Robert Napa pleaded guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Rachel Nickell's family finally got justice after 16 years. It was now clear that the police had missed several chances to apprehend Napa before he killed Rachel and the Bissets. It was a devastating revelation. The Met made a formal apology to the Nickell and Bissett families and to Colin Stagg. It is clear that he is completely innocent of any involvement in that case. This is one of the landmark cases in the history of the, of the Met, and it wasn't the Met's finest hour by, you know, by any way, however you described it. The Metropolitan Police Service has apologized unreservedly for the failings in the investigation into Rachel Nickell's death, accepting more could have been done to prevent the attacks carried out by Robert Knapper. After 16 years of living under a cloud of suspicion, Colin Stagg was finally in the clear. What I wanted was for people in the streets to realise they got it wrong about me. I'm now slowly realising that I have a future after all, and that's a great feeling. He still doesn't own any sleeves. The police's so use of criminal profilers to assist murder investigations came under heavy scrutiny. What do you think the impact has been? I think it made everybody take a huge step back uh, and, and realize that you know, this whole thing about sort of cracker and um, somebody being able to determine who had committed a crime on uh, what we, we would not recognize as proper evidence was dubious, highly dubious. This is a case that haunts so many of those involved and the human cost was enormous. A young woman in the prime of her life was slaughtered that's the biggest tragedy. And the problem with it is, it is the colossal scale of that tragedy which, in effect, tainted all that followed. If Robert Knapper had been stopped when he committed the green chain rapes, Rachel, Samantha, and Jasmine wouldn't have died.
the mistakes that were made then now serve as a reminder that a tragedy on this scale must never be allowed to happen again. All right. So I hope you enjoyed that documentary. Um, I really just, it just, you heard it at the end there. That is the landmark moment when I think the runaway train that had become the excitement and allure of, of using forensic psychologists stopped. And, and it was at that moment that I think there was, at least I speak on the UK here, there was self-reflection around what they can do and how they should be used. And, and, and in Thursday's lecture, I will, I will show you the kind of the post uh, Nickel kind of um, evolution of the field as to how they kind of reevaluated their approach here. But you, there's so many questions I want to ask you. I mean, firstly, you you saw what the you saw why they brought in a profiler in the first place because of a lack of evidence. You saw the profile, and I hope when you watched it, you're thinking to yourself, "It's an interesting profile." How did? What, why does he think that? You know, like, like, why does he think that? And then you saw the profile lead to Colin Stagg, who I think at best maybe matches 50% of the profile, really. And, and this one little occult thing that they really, really liked. And then you saw the entire investigation that became not collecting evidence to prove that Stagg did it, but collecting evidence to prove that Stagg matched the profile. To kind of a bait and switch from 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 evidentiary to just confirming that the profile. All the while, you see the fundamental problem, which is that they have taken their eye off every other suspect and the suspect pool to the point at which, when a very similar murder, statistically low base rate, high similarity murder, is committed in the same city, they're con I'm going to try and say this. They, they don't, they already think they have their person and they don't think there's any similarity because they are convinced they have their person who they don't have any evidence of. What blows my mind even more is that the same profiler looked at the Green Street Rapes, the murder of Rachel Nicole and the murder of Samantha Bissett, which is a series of sexual assaults that culminated in sexual assaults in front of children. A murder in front of a child and the murder in front of a child and the murder of a child. The same profiler drew up three different profiles and those were all committed by the same person. And that, 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 to, that to me is the indictment. But I, I mean, you'll, 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 you'll see now in this case, kind of the playing with fire is 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 good till you get too close to the sun which is i think i'm pretty sure is mixed mess metaphors but anyway look um we're going to talk more about this on thursday i'm going to show you what happened since what we do now how we approach it i really hope you enjoyed that i just think it's it's such a a, a vivid lively and human and, and 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 real way to show you what can happen when the when profiling is a little too close to its movie counterpart so enjoy i hope you enjoyed that uh, I hope you enjoy the reading this week and I will be seeing you on Thursday. I'm very excited to catch up. All right. Have a great day.